I wanted to first begin by saying something about uh, how I got here, why I'm here, because I think many of you may not be aware of the kind of work that we're doing, and in many ways it'll shed light on what we're going to say today. Uh, and, and in many ways also it'll be a compliment to what has been said already uh, over the past couple of days. Um, like most people, I, was, I grew up in, I was born in Toronto. I grew up uh, as a typical kind of, you know, Westerner. <laughs> Um, and, uh, but I always come from Muslim background, so I, I, I knew that, I had that with me. And when I entered university as an undergraduate student, I was uh, largely interested in philosophy. So like most other people, and I thought it was really cool to study philosophy. So I took that path. I started studying philosophy, Arabic, and Persian. Those were my, those were my three loves. And until uh, today, my wife tells me, she says to me, I'm, I'm like your third love. Because my first love is Arabic, and then it's Persian, and then it's her. So I said, so she said, so I said, at least you have a, some kind of status up there. Um, anyway, uh, so I started studying uh, philosophy, and uh, and and sure enough, within within uh, the first year or two of my studies, I had already started to encounter questions I just never had before, or things that might have occurred to me but which seemed quite absurd when I heard about them originally. Um, and I was taking a course. I remember the day. It was so such. It's so vivid in my memory. I was about maybe 20 years old at that time. And I was taking a course on Kierkegaard and Nietzsche, two very important uh, European thinkers in the 19th century. And uh, Nietzsche was very popular in Toronto in the 90s, uh, late 90s. And everyone was studying Nietzsche and was talking about him. Things have changed uh, a lot, uh, at least in Canada, in the last 10 years. But um, so I kind of got caught up with that wave, and I started studying him, and I was taking this course. And I remember the day where I was sitting in the classroom, and the teacher was speaking about Nietzsche's views on the nature of reality. And she said, you know, there's no such thing, uh, according to Nietzsche, there's no such thing as truth. There is no way we could know truth. Uh, everything is just an interpretation. There are no facts, just interpretations. And I just felt just everything being sucked right out of me as she was saying this. I was like, oh. And I, and I had no way of responding. And it was... <laughs> It was just all happening so slowly, and I was sitting in the back, and I was thinking, geez, what do I do? Somebody say something. I surely couldn't. <laughs> so, uh, um, and, uh, and, and so, and, and I noticed when I looked around me, a lot of the students were nodding their heads as if they approved, and I thought, this is really bad. Uh, and I ended up uh, leaving the class, and, I, and I, I just, it was, it was the beginning of the fall. So I left the class, uh, and, and I felt, you know, kind of depressed, if you like. I just was very down. I was like, how do I... Answers. I know it's not correct, but I just don't have an answer. And then I went in Toronto. If anyone's been there, there's a beautiful part of the campus, University of Toronto, uh, called Queen's Park, which is uh, it's, 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 it's where some of the parliamentary stuff happens in Toronto. Um, the main parliamentary stuff is in Ottawa, the city that I live in right now. But this, this, this area is very beautiful, a lot of natural greenery. Uh, the scenery is extremely beautiful. A lot of people are walking around. Everyone's very happy in that area. Once you start moving to the newer part of the campus where the matter is heavier and more consolidated, uh, uh, smiles change, all of a sudden they're like frowns and everyone's worried about getting to their next appointment. But there it's very relaxed. So I went there and I, I was sitting there thinking, how am I going <clears> to <throat> respond? I had pretty much no faculties to do that. I didn't really know any of the, I don't know much about Islamic philosophy or anything like this. And I certainly had never heard the name Ibn Arabi at that point. Uh, and then I looked around me and, and it was a beautiful fall day. We, we, get, we used to get full falls in Canada. We don't get them anymore. We get them like for like just one month now. Back then we had beautiful falls, and I, I, the, the sun kind of shone on all these leaves, and it was just a really kind of like a symphony 
of, of beauty and truth all coming together at, at once. And I said to myself, that's the greatest refutation of what the teacher was just saying. Natural beauty. It doesn't need an argument. It's just there and it's just so obvious. But how do you communicate what's so obvious? And so, uh, sure enough, within a few months, I encountered uh, William Chittick's book, uh, The Sufi Path of Knowledge, because uh, a good friend of mine was uh, um, uh, big Ibn Arabi uh, fan. He, he now today is one of the big scholars in Canada on Ibn Arabi. And when, after I read that book, then it really kind of helped me explain precisely that. Ex helped me explain how to talk about what is so self-evident. So in many ways, uh, my encounter with Ibn Arabi has been to explain and to articulate what's already known. And that largely is uh, what I, I've been doing in my own work, is in a sense just to recover uh, what, has, what has been there, or rather even uncover. Some un something, if you uncover something, that means that it was, it's, it's been obscured. But not because it's not there, it's just because it's just been obscured. What you have to do is just like dust on a book, just, just kind of wipe it off. So in many ways, that's what I'm going to do for you today. I'm going to just be wiping some of the dust off of the book, so to speak, and a very particular book at that. Um, so let me move into uh, my lecture proper, and I hope that that gives you some background as to where I stand. And uh, I think it will, you'll find a lot of resonances with what I will say to you uh, in a moment. So I'd like to begin my talk this afternoon with a story, first of all, with a story which has to do with a famous medieval uh, scholar from Islam, classical Islamic civilization by the name of Fakhruddin Ar-Razi, who died in 1210 of the Common Era. Has anyone heard of this man? Yeah. Oh, good. Wow, that many people? <laughs> I'm surprised. I had no idea. I don't know. Oh, good. Well, let me say a little bit more about him for those of you who, who are not aware of him. So uh, during his lifetime, uh, Razi had attained a great deal of fame. And uh, he was really the leading theologian and Quran commentator of his era. He left behind many works of great intellectual depth and subtlety and has to his credit not only a commentary upon one of the most important uh, works of Ibn Sina, 1037, died in 1037, and a number of highly influential works in philosophical theology, logic and theology, all kinds of things, even grammar. But he also has this monumental commentary upon the Quran, which is called Al-Mufati Al-Ghayb, the keys to the unseen. And it really is uh, the, the most important and comprehensive and sophisticated Quran commentary written by any one single individual in human history. I mean, I can say that quite comfortably now. I've been spending a couple of years working with that book. And it's an unbelievable work, really unbelievable. And he sees so many connections between Quranic verses where previous commentators just either didn't mention or, or they probably didn't see. And he really, really impresses you in that work and you really come to respect him a lot. Anyway, it is said that despite all of his learning, Razi had one day decided to take the spiritual path, to become initiated into a Sufi order, that is. So he went to a well-known spiritual master of his day in Central Asia and asked to be initiated into the spiritual life. The master received him and immediately put him into a halwa, or spiritual isolation, with particular instructions of how to invoke the name of God. Razi went in and undertook the rites assigned to him. After some time, the master had entered the room <clears throat> and with his powers of spiritual concentration, tasarruf, looked directly at Razi and then started to extract all of his book learning from his soul. So Razi's invoking God's name. This master comes in and starts looking at him like this and, and he's doing something to Razi and, and Razi struggles to hang on to his knowledge but it was literally being pulled away from him by his master. Since he could not accept that all of his book learning be stripped from him, Razi forced himself up and left the room. So this is a common, common story that's told in many different versions. 
Um, undoubtedly, the story is fictitious, but it serves to indicate one thing most clearly. The Fakhadin Arazi, the great thinker of his day, had a problem. He could not give up his worldly book learning in place of spiritual knowledge. There is, however, an element of truth in this story since we know that at a later part in his life, Razi did indeed struggle with the question of following the spiritual path. But the polemical function of the story is also clear. In fact, Razi had become in Central Asia and Anatolia during the 13th and 14th centuries a sort of representative of that excessively cerebral type of scholar who was blind to spiritual truths because he could not see past his bookishness. And of course, before Razi uh, assumed that, that infamous role, it was Ibn Sina, Avicenna, who in a lot of Persian literature especially, was on the, was on the uh, brunt at the end of receiving end of many jokes. Rumi calls Avicenna a donkey on ice in one of his, uh, in one of his poems, a donkey on ice. Uh, this Razi polemic features quite interestingly in a number of Sufi texts, like for example, Rumi, who died in 1273. It is even said that Razi and Rumi's father, Bahavalad, had, uh, who was a famous theologian and Sufi, uh, Sufi in Central Asia, uh, did not get along at least on some level, perhaps because of the, the whole problem of Sufism and, and theology. Consider these lines from Rumi. So this is what Rumi says about Razi in one of his poems. If in this matter of ours, the intellect could discern the way, then Fakhr Razi would be the mystery keeper of the religion. And darim bas ra khirad rah bimbudi, Fakhr Razi razdane bimbudi. We even find references to Razi in the writings of Shams tabrizi Rumi's beloved companion, who disappeared in 1246. In one passage, Razi is portrayed in an extremely negative light. Now, I don't know where Shams got this following passage from, but um, it, it goes to show you that there was a lot of animosity or bad blood towards Razi. I don't accept this at all. I don't think he ever said this, but this is what Shams reports. He says, what gall Fakhr Razi had? He said, Muhammad Tazi, the Arab, says this, and Muhammad Razi says that, kind of putting himself on the same level of the Prophet. Those, these, this translation from Shams is from Chidik's uh, unparalleled uh, um, uh, translation of the Maqalat. Um, and so Shams continues, isn't he the apostate of the time? Isn't he an unqualified unbeliever, kafir, unless he repents? In another passage similar to Rumi's poem, Razi the intellectual is juxtaposed with two of the greatest early Sufi figures, Abu Yazid Bastami and Junaid. He says, if it were fitting to perceive these meanings by study and debate, then it would be necessary for Abu Yazid and Junaid to rub their heads in the dirt out of regret before Fakhr Razi. They would need to become his students for a hundred years. <laughs> now at the same time, Razi is also, he also receives a lot of compliments. In one very strange passage, again from Shams's Maqalat, um, <laughs> there, there's a certain person, a countryman of Razi, named Saif Zanjani. No, no one knows who this person is. And, uh, and, and, and he used to apparently criticize Razi. He used to make a lot of fun of him and criticize him. And Shams could at least appreciate Razi's learning. So he says, who is this Saif Zanjani that he should speak bad about Razi? He goes, if, Saif Zanja, if, if Razi were to break wind, 100 Saif Zanjani's would go in an existence and out of existence. So yeah. <laughs> And Rumi has some very nice uh, lines which I won't share with you um, in praise of Razi too. Anyway, the image, if we can call it that, of Fakhreddin Razi has occupied us thus far because of his curious relationship, if we can call it that, to none other than Ibn Arabi. We know that at some point during his stay in the Muslim East, Ibn Arabi wrote a very short letter to Razi, calling him to give up the intellectual life, that is knowledge 
of God, but one that is filled as it is with all kinds of uncertainties in place of the inner life. That is for direct knowledge from God, and hence complete certainty. We know from statements in Ibn Arabi's Futuhat that he was aware of Razi's work. Indeed, it is highly likely that Ibn Arabi had also heard the many stories about Razi, both positive and negative, that were circulating in his day. He at least knew one of them for sure, the very important one, which I'll be sharing with you uh, in a moment. Why Ibn Arabi wrote this letter to Razi in particular seems obvious. There was no thinker in Ibn Arabi's time who occupied as exalted a status as Razi. And there was none who was more famed for his rational demonstrations and intellectual abilities. One more short story if I could share with you before I continue. There's so many wonderful stories about Razi. Um, there's one, he was always, because he was a polemical kind of theologian too, he used to debate with all kinds of different uh, uh, sects within Islam. And uh, in one famous story, he used to, uh, he was bitterly opposed to Ismailis, of course. And they were very active in uh, well, uh, the last remnants of them in, in Transoxiana at that time, Mawar al-Nahr. And he used to really criticize them heavily. And uh, he always used to stand up on the Friday sermons during his khutbahs and, and he'd say, the Ismailis have no proof, they have no proof. They have no burhan. It's a philosophical, technical term, proof. A burhan is when you provide somebody with a burhan, if it's a burhan qat'i, then it just hits you and that's the end of it. You just accept it. And he says, they have nothing like that to convince us that they're correct. About certain theological claims. One day, Razi was going home. And uh, from, the, from the back of an alley, a person comes and pins him against the wall and puts a knife right up at his back and says, hey, you, you better stop talking about us Ismailis. And Razi says, or else what? He goes, otherwise I'm going to put this in you next time you say something. So I said, okay, fine. Next time he went for his khutbah, he said nothing about the Ismailis. Next time he went, same thing. And so somebody said to him, I don't understand. You're always saying the Ismailis have no proof, have no proof. And now you've stopped talking. And he says, that's because I've seen their proof. I'm glad that evokes such laughter from you. <laughs> uh, that's by calling Razi uh, to the spiritual path. Ibn Arabi is, in so many words, speaking to all of us who wish to know the nature of things, but who for one reason or another are reticent about letting go of, or at least not giving pride of place to, our discursive faculties in attaining this knowledge. I would like to take a brief moment here simply to read to you the opening parts of the letter, since it effectively helps set the stage for the discussion which will follow. And here I should interject a couple of things. Number one, the surprise that I mentioned uh, to Stephen. Uh, I'm very thankful to the Ibn Arabi Society, uh, number one, for inviting me here, but before that, because our correspondence goes back, as Stephen had mentioned, for many years, uh, they had sent me, they did send me several copies, uh, manuscript copies of the letter, about 10 copies or so, Jane Clark and, and Stephen uh, Herdenstein. And, uh, and based on that, I made a translation. I'm preparing an edition, uh, which, I, which I promised to, to you uh, as... Uh, an answer to that question that you were asking me about uh, eventually. So just give me, give me a few months and once I catch up on some sleep and other things and I'll, I hope to get back to it. Anyway, um, so this is how the, the letter uh, sounds, the, the opening lines at least of it. In the name of God, the compassionate, the merciful. The first paragraph here I'm going to read to you is an insertion, a scribal insertion common in manuscript writing. It says, this is the letter by the master, the leader, the firmly rooted in knowledge, the unique, the verifier, the unveiler, of divine realities, the reviver of the community and the religion, Abu Abdullah Muhammad bin Ali al-Arabi al-Ta'i al-Andalusi al-Maghribi, God sanctify his soul, to the leader, the learned, the adept, the erudite, the pride of the community and the religion, Muhammad bin Umar al-Khatib al-Razi, 
God grant him peace and make paradise his abode. Now Ibn Arabi begins. He says, Praises for God and peace upon his chosen servants and upon my dear friend for the sake of God, Fakhradin Muhammad. God elevate his aspiration, himma, and shower his mercy and blessings upon him. <clears throat> now to proceed. Before you I praise God, other than whom there is no God. The messenger of God, God bless him and grant him peace, said, quoting the Prophet's hadith, when one of you loves your brother, let him know about it. This is the hadith of the Prophet. And Ibn Arabi says, and I love you. So right off the bat, he's letting him know that this is an exchange that's going to take place, at least from one master to another. Uh, and it's not a personal thing. He's not trying to outdo him, show him how much more intelligent than he is than him. But he's just letting him know that this is a letter uh, that I'm writing to you out of concern. And the Prophet said that if, the, if, if you love your brother, then you should tell him. And I love you, so I'm communicating to you fundamentally my love for you. And hopefully this can open up communication and it can convey to you the kind of thing that I want to get to your heart. Then Ibn Arabi quotes uh, 103.3 of the Quran. God says in those who enjoin to truth, My fr friend, God grant him success, should know that the complete inheritance, Al-Wiratha Al-Kamila, is that which is complete in every respect, not in some respects. And then he quotes another hadith, the knowers are the inheritors of the prophets. An intelligent person should strive to be in error in every respect and not be deficient in aspiration. My friend, God grants him success, already knows that the beauty of the human subtlety, al-Latif al-Insaniya, is obtained only by virtue of the divine knowledge that it bears. And its ugliness is the opposite of this. One key theme in this letter deals with the nature of aspiration and what a life of lofty aspirations entails. This is closely tied to the nature of intelligence and the pursuit of obtaining what Ibn Arabi calls the beauty of the human subtlety, that is the heart. Since Razi was a man who had a great deal of book learning and was notorious for his excessive rationalism in all matters religious, Ibn Arabi first attempts to pull him away from over-reliance upon what we can call is the discursive faculty or discursive thought, fikr, in understanding the true nature of things. So then he says, I'm quoting Ibn Arabi, a person with lofty aspirations, Ali al-Himma, should not waste his life away in knowing and expositing theological novelties, muhattathat, lest his share from his Lord escape him. He should also free himself from the authority of his discursive thought, for discursive thought can only know from its own point of reference. But the truth that is sought after is not like that. Now, Razi was also most well known for his in-depth analysis of God's existence and the many proofs, we've already seen that word, that he could give, uh, derive, excuse me, in establishing it. It is incidentally said that one day Razi was walking with his entourage when they passed by an old woman. Okay, I lie, one more story. Um, uh, one of Razi's companions said to her, because this, they're passing by and she just kind of sits down and and she doesn't really do anything, show any reverence for this great man. And so the companion of Razi says to her, Stand up, for this is the great Razi, the man who has a hundred proofs for the existence of God. The woman retorted, The only reason he needs a hundred proofs is because he has a hundred doubts. That's why after the faith of old women, the Prophet said, there's a great wisdom in that. Ibn Arabi's argument will uh, slightly be different. He will not address Razi's doubt right away. First, he needs to demonstrate how other the science of reality is from what the intellect affords Razi. 
So he will make a key distinction here between knowledge of God and knowledge of God's existence. So he's going to play on this distinction. Uh, the intellect can discern God's existence, and this is only by way of negation and affirmation, what they call in Arabic and Islamic philosophy, uh, the if nafi or salb. By knowledge of God is uh, something uh, very different is meant. The intellect cannot know God in his entirety, that is, qua manifestation, because we can never know God as he knows himself anyway. And so one must do away with the psychological attachment to the kind of knowledge of God's existence that is afforded to him by his intellect in order to allow space, of course, for another kind of knowing to emerge, namely knowledge of God, which is tantamount to the act of witnessing him with the eye of the heart. And I'll have a lot to say about the heart uh, as we progress. So Ibn Arabi says, God, great and glorious, is too exalted to be known by the intellect and its powers of reflection and discursive thought. An intelligent person should empty his heart of discursive thought when he wants to know God by way of witnessing. Mushahada. This is important when there's this part here, when he wants to know God by way of witnessing, it'll come up again later on. I would now like to offer a reflection on what is meant by aspiration and how it relates to what the Sufis refer to as poverty or faqr. As the Arabic etymology of the word aspiration would suggest, himma or aspiration entails the devotion to something that is important, worthwhile, essential, fundamental, and in some cases even all-consuming. We do not, for example, have himma or aspiration for things that we deem lowly. So it is a term that is reserved for things which particularly catch our interest and attention. One of the implications here is that if one has aspiration, it is at least on account of the object itself, in the eyes of the beholder, that this aspiration exists. The person with high aspirations with respect to God is thus after the most important, worthwhile, essential, fundamental, and all-consuming thing of all, namely God. And the reason it's, uh, it's so great to aspire to God because from the perspective of the, the object of aspiration, God, from his own perspective, he's so great. Because God has deemed himself so great, human beings should seek to pursue him. And that, ha that ties into many Quranic verses, like the one that says where God says, uh, God bears witness that there's no God but him. That ultimately is why we pursue him, because he is the witness of his own oneness. Ibn Arabi does not at any point in his letter t uh, uh, attempt to tell Razi that he does not have any aspiration. So you'll notice that Ibn Arabi is affirming for Razi, <coughs> you have aspiration, that's a good thing. He's not saying to him, you're wasting your time and you're a man without aspirations. He, he could not say that anyway, even if he wanted to. Razi was a man of, of great learning. He is careful to let Razi know that he is aware of his pursuit of certainty and to ultimately knowledge of God. Yet Ibn Arabi wants to suggest to Razi that since he has the loftiest of all aspirations, namely God himself, he should not busy himself with those things which are not commensurate to his goal. Namely that he should not occupy himself with ways of coming to know God and understanding him which are not appropriate uh, to him, except of course in a limited sense. The intellect is a case in point. It can only delimit God, that is restrict him, confine him, put him in particular systems of thought, syllogisms and ultimately trap him and bind him to the intellect's own limited perspective. And it can be noted here, of course, that the Arabic word for aql comes from the word which signifies uh, the shackling of a, a camel. Taqil is when you, you know, tie a camel to a, tether, tether a camel and put it to a pole so it doesn't run away. In the following passage, Ibn Arabi offers some comments on the operative dimension of the intellect, namely what is known as reflection or nazar, 
and then explains the limitations of the intellect. So he says, when the people of reflection attain the furthermost goal, their reflection takes them to the state of being deaf imitators. So he says, ultimately, if you've actualized all the possibilities of the, the human intellect, and I, when, I say, when I use the word intellect here in Islamic philosophy, obviously it has a very sacred function. Ibn Arabi is not drawing on that, on that understanding here. He just means the usual discursive nature of the human intellect. He says, even if you've taken that to its furthest, most loftiest heights, you've actualized it completely on that human plane, what you've, what you've gotten to is you've gotten to the level of what he calls deaf imitation. That's, that's where that will take you. So it's, it's not really a praiseworthy station, ultimately, to be a deaf imitator. People make fun of deaf imitators all the time. But the matter is too exalted for it, Ibn Arabi continues, to halt at reflection. So long as there is reflection, it is impossible for one to be tranquil and at rest. The intellect has a limit at which it halts with respect to its reflective powers. For it has a quality of receiving only what God bestows upon it. Therefore, an intelligent person should expose himself to the divine breaths of generosity, nafahat al-jud, which goes back to a hadith, and not remain enslaved by the shackle of his reflection and learning, for he is, for he is liable to obfuscation because of his shubha, doubt. He's liable to doubt because of the intellect. If you rely just on the intellect, you could fall into doubt, in other words. And we have many cases of that in the history of, not just, of course, Islam, uh, but that, that doubt often was grounded in a, in a deep certainty of God. Even in the case of Ghazali, there was a doubt that he had of the, the, the nature of the kind of certainty that he had, and never the nature of God's existence. And very few Muslim thinkers doubted God in that way. That's why in Islamic theology, one uh, the opposite of, 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 of belief in God is not the non-existence of God. You don't find that in Islamic texts, like that kind of juxtaposition. You have tasdiq billah, belief in God, and the opposite of that is failure to understand that God exists, <laughs> or failure to acknowledge that it's there. Not the non-existence of it, because that's just totally not up for grabs. That's why, like I said, we're really just in the, in the business here of just recovering what's, what's already there. So, thus, if one has the loftiest of aspirations, God, then one cannot attempt to attain this object of aspiration with something which, by definition, limits and confines and which is liable to obfuscation, as Ibn Arabi said. This would be tantamount to saying that one aspires to God, who is beyond any and all forms of intellectual conceptualization, but through the intellect itself. In more philosophical language, we could say that this is akin to knowing that which is necessary by the sole means of that which is contingent, language with which Razi was, of course, very much at home. In Islamic philosophy and theology, God is known as the necessary being, wajib al-wujud, a technical term that became standard fare in texts of Islamic thought from the time of Avicenna onwards. Unlike God, whose being cannot not be, that which exists and whose existence depends on him is referred to as contingent or possible being, mumkin al-wujud, another well-known term bequeathed by Ibn Sina. Since contingent beings do not have their own being, they are fundamentally nothing before God, who is the source of all being. Their being is thus derived from his, contingent upon his, and thus points to their ultimate need of him for their existence. With this thought in mind, Ibn Arabi then tells Razi that, to quote him, whatever does not have perfection, except through what is other than it, is itself impoverished. Such is the condition of everything other than God. Masiwallah, the whole cosmos, everything is in a state of poverty. Thus, elevate your aspiration so that you do not take knowledge except from God, 
by way of unveiling, kashf. Um, and of course, that kind of poverty that he's speaking about here, it's, it's known in technically in Arabic terminology as al-faqar al-wujudi, or what is called ontological poverty. You can be the richest person in the world, have all the wealth, and, you know, all kinds of uh, money, that kind of thing, but you could be the most realized person, have faqar al-wujudi. Uh, speaking of camels and speaking of fakr, I'll share with you another another anecdote. This time I'm, I didn't lie because I'm, it won't be about Razi this time. Uh, Ghazali's brother, uh, Ahmad Ghazali, one of the most famous Persian Sufis, and I, about whom uh, we heard a little bit uh, yesterday, he used to preach to his uh, um, students all the time. He used to say to them, don't be attached, don't be attached, don't be attached. Um, and um, he, uh, he was a very rich man, however. He had, a, he had about 100 camels. 100 camels is like, I don't know, in, in today that would be like maybe like 50 Mercedes-Benz, something like that. You know, a camel was a very precious, precious animal uh, back then. And so he used to have 100 camels and they, they'd be sitting outside of his, his khanaga while he's, giving, while he's giving these discourses. And um, one time a student put up his hand, he says, yeah, Sheikh, how come you, you say, don't be attached, don't be attached, don't be attached, yet you have 100 camels. There they are right there, tethered outside. And he says, well, the reason I can say that is because those camels, they're, they're being held down by the pegs that are in the ground, not the pegs that are in my heart. So, so they're, not, they're not tied to me, they're tied there. So, um, uh, so in other words, the human intellect as a contingent thing is not complete or does not have any kind of existence except by virtue of something else. I am here reminded of the Quranic verse, 47:38 in the Quran, God is the rich and you are the poor. Wallahu al-ghani wa antum al-fuqara. Thus that which is fundamentally impoverished cannot know that which is infinitely rich, since that which is fundamentally impoverished only has efficacy and agency when the infinitely rich gives it some of its riches. Since Razi is using an impoverished tool to understand the infinitely rich, he will not be able to attain this goal. Recall here the last words of the aforementioned passage. Ibn Arabi says, Thus elevate your aspirations so that you do not take knowledge except from God by way of unveiling. This is an important statement since it calls to mind in this context a famous hadith Qudsi or divine saying where God says, to quote the hadith, My servant should approach me with what I do not have. The narration then tells us that that which God does not have is poverty, faqr. Ibn Arabi's statement that one should only take knowledge from God means that one should only let the source of one's own relative richness, the rich himself, give knowledge of himself. If one aspires to know God, therefore, one can do so only on God's terms. His terms require that we aspire to Him with that which is the very opposite of Him, namely, what we are, fundamentally poor and impoverished. Ibn Arabi is not simply calling Razi to give up his intellectual learning. Indeed, Razi's aspirations are legitimate, and the means by which he obtains most of them are also appropriate to these goals. Yet these aspirations, whether they are rational proofs for the existence of God, or other intricately articulated points in theology, are ultimately finite. Thus, one should only invest so much time and energy into them. Their finite nature entails that they be dealt with uh, in, in, in Arabic, and what Ibn Arabi refers to as according to the measure of need. بِقَدْرَ الْحَاجَةِ that is, these forms of learning have importance and efficacy in this world where rational proofs and intellectual arguments are meaningful and necessary. Yet the only kind of science that requires all of our aspiration, 
and which thus demands that we give all of ourselves to it by realizing our nothingness, that is, is that science which will remain valid, so to speak, when we die, namely knowledge of God. Now there's a really lovely passage here that Ibn Arabi cites uh, and which in the seminar we'll be, we'll be looking at too. He says, an intelligent person should only seek to know that through which his essence is perfected and which will depart from him when he departs. And this is nothing but knowledge of God by way of bestowal, wahab, and witnessing. Your knowledge of medicine, for example, you only need it in a world where there is illness and sickness. When you depart to a world in which there is neither sickness nor illness, who will, who will you cure with that knowledge? An intelligent person does not strive to know medicine insofar as there is no well-being in it for him. Likewise is the case with geometry. You only need it in a world where there are surfaces. When you depart, you will leave it in the world appropriate for it, for the soul will leave empty-handed, savija, accompanied by nothing. In this way will the soul leave behind preoccupation with every science at the time of its departing to the next world. This also calls to mind a particularly instructive couplet from Rumi. As you know, I see I have a great love for Mawlana. He says, Rumi says, of all the forms of knowledge on the day of death, it is the science of poverty that will provide provisions and supplies for the way. Returning to the link between aspiration and poverty, there is one Quranic text uttered on the lips of Moses which establishes their relationship particularly well. It occurs in the context of Moses' encounter with the daughters of Jethro after he fled from Egypt and found himself in the wilderness with nothing and in a completely broken state. After he had assisted Jethro's daughters in drawing some water from the well, he tells God, this is in 28:24 of the Quran, he says, my Lord, truly I am in need of any good that you might send upon me. Rabbi inni lima anzalta ilayya min khayrin faqir. Notice here the function of aspiration and its relationship to poverty. Moses approaches God with that which he does not have, poverty, and in addressing whatever it is that he aspires to, does so in a manner which is befitting to God, since he comes to God as he, Moses, truly is in his state of fundamental nothingness. The commentary of the literature tells us that Moses' request here was for food. That's the common interpretation. Since he was famished after having spent many days in the wilderness without any kind of sustenance. And God granted Moses his request by blessing him with food and shelter since Jethro hired him uh, for a number of years and even gave Moses one of his daughters to marry him. This is from the Quran. Working with this interpretation of the verse, and there are many others of course, we can take an important teaching point from it. If Moses comes to God in his nothingness for physical food and God bestows it upon him, then how much more would this be the case with respect to what we can call spiritual food. So physical food, if you come uh, in a state of poverty to God, he'll give it to you. If you come in a state of ontological poverty to God and you want spiritual food, he'll give it to you. Um, in the case of Moses, we know that apart from God granting his request for food, on account of his utter uh, state of brokenness before him, he also spoke to him on Mount Horeb, which the Bible calls the mountain of God. It is perhaps for this reason that the early Sufi figure Abu Sulaiman al-Darani said, who died in 830, concerning Moses, God looked into the hearts of the children of Adam and did not find a heart more humble than the one belonging to Moses. Thus he singled Moses out from amongst them by speaking with him. Now allow me to return to the contents of the letter. Thus far Ibn Arabi has argued to Razi 
that if he aspires to know God, he should attempt to do so in a manner that will actually take him to God such that he can witness him. That is, through the science of unveiling. Remaining confined to the intellect will not take him to his goal, in other words. And even if one can attain knowledge of God through the use of the intellect alone, which Razi no doubt had attained at an exceptionally sophisticated level, he was still liable to obfuscation. In fact, Ibn Arabi cites an incident transmitted to him by one of Razi's students, who was also an acquaintance of Ibn Arabi, and there is internal evidence in the Futuhat to, to explain how this correspondence took place or which corroborates this information. And this account has Razi weeping as a state of a kind of obfuscation that he had suffered. So Ibn Arabi addresses this point in the letter. He says, It has been reported to me from one of your brothers, whom I trust and who is amongst those sincerely disposed towards you, that he saw you crying one day. Razi is sitting there crying. And so he and those present you, uh, asked you, Why are you crying? You replied, A position to which I have adhered to for the past 30 years has been clarified for me thanks to a proof which has just dawned upon me. It turns out that the truth of the matter is contrary to my previous position. So I cried and said to myself, perhaps that which has occurred to me is also like the first position. This then, and then Ibn Arabi says, this then is what you said. So rather than theoretically attempting to convince Razi that he should properly situate his aspirations in a way that is commensurate with his object of pursuit, citing the intellect as an impediment on the way of knowledge to God, Ibn Arabi cites a concrete example from Razi's own life that illustrates his point. We have here Razi weeping over an obvious state of confusion all caused by the intellect, with the implication, of course, that he cannot entirely rely upon the intellect for any certain kind of knowledge, let alone knowledge of God. Interestingly enough, this crisis of certitude reported here is in keeping with what we know of Razi's life. As the leader of the doubters, that's what was his name, Imam al-Mushakkikin, um, Razi's philosophical know-how and ability to debate with any opponent on any given topic caused uh, them to doubt their own knowledge, eventually began to affect him as well. Along with his bouts of doubt concerning the basis for what he took to be certain knowledge in philosophical theology, we also know from Razi's writings that he attempted to understand mysticism, at least on some level. It has even recently been argued by one contemporary Razi scholar, Iman Shihadeh, that Razi in some sense even accepted, at least theoretically, the importance of the Sufi path, and which served on some level as a basis for his doubts about the sciences of philosophy and theology. Judging from the parts of the commentary, uh, the Quran commentary, at least that, that I'm familiar with, it is clear that Razi indeed has spiritual inclinations. And he even cites, you know, for example, Halaj approvingly, and there are many texts in there that you can just see that he lifted from Ghazali, from Talib al-Makki, and he's, he uses them, he infuses them with his own interpretations, and, and, and they really add a lot of life to his commentary. What we can know for certain is that this report concerning Razi's doubt gives Ibn Arabi the perfect opportunity to drive home an important teaching, namely that a life devoted to God, but exclusively in terms of theoretical knowledge, even just the theoretical knowledge of mysticism, will still result in unrest and will lead to serious shortcomings in attaining one's own object of aspiration. So Ibn Arabi says, it is impossible for the one who knows through the scope of the intellect and discursive thought to be at rest or tranquil especially when it comes to knowing God, and it is impossible for him to know his reality by way of discursive thought. If the person who knows through the scope of the intellect, as Ibn Arabi says, cannot attain tranquility, surely there are others who can. This calls to mind the famous Quranic verse, 1328, which speaks of those whose hearts find repose in the remembrance of God, 
As we find in many other religions and cultures, the heart often symbolizes the innermost reality of an individual, spiritually speaking. That is, it is that thing which makes the human being what it really is. It is, as one famous philosopher of religion, Ari Korban, put it, the organ of mystic physiology. I love that explanation. The heart is the organ of mystic physiology. References to the heart in the Quran and prophetic literature abound. The Quran, for example, says that it is not physical eyes that become blind to the truth, but rather people's hearts that go blind. The Prophet Muhammad is known to have said that the heart of the faithful believer is the very throne of God. The Sufis taking Islam's twin sources very seriously, obviously, uh, have written extensively upon something called the science of the purification of the heart. There are the scores of books in classical Islam which have to do with explaining to the reader the problems of the heart, which tainted and uh, what taints it, the things that obscure its vision, and ultimately how these forms of spiritual blindness can be overcome. One of the most common analogies for the heart is that it is like a mirror. When a mirror has filth upon it, it does not accurately reflect the image which stands before it. Some aspects of the object standing before a grimy mirror may come through, but not the object in its actual pristine form. The heart likewise is capable of becoming sullied by things such as evil actions and thoughts in general and forgetfulness of God in particular. In short, the heart becomes tainted whenever it does not conform to God's will. And surely aspiring to God through other than Him would ultimately amount to non-conformity to the divine will, since it would mean that the poor comes to the rich, but on the poor's own terms. It's like a beggar knocking at the door of a king and the king says, come in, and the beggar says, yeah, but let me, let me bring my baggage and let me do all, all, all of these things that, that I insist on, on, on that, that's commensurate to my way of life. And the king says, if you want to come to my uh, court, then you, you better do it on my terms. Clean yourself up first, then come in. How does one polish the mirror of the heart? The Prophet Muhammad says in a well-known tradition that the polish of the heart is the act of remembering God, dhikr. In other words, the more one remembers God, the more the heart becomes alive as it burnishes away the mirror of its substance cleansing it of the stain of forgetfulness which stubbornly clings to it. This implies that the more one does away with his illusory existence, the more he comes to see himself as nothing before God, which is in fact what he truly is. And when a heart becomes totally polished, that image which stands before it, namely God, can be reflected in it without the barrier of the human ego. A polished heart, when all traces of the dross of duality disappear, thus reflects God as he is to himself since he looks at himself through the polished mirror and only sees himself. Such a heart thus approaches God with what he does not have. God does not have, namely poverty, thus signaling the expulsion of the false dichotomy of duality between the servant and the served. It is worth noting here that when looking into a mirror, the observer is unconscious of the surface of the mirror itself and can only, become, uh, excuse me, and can only behold his own image, which is not actually real in any case anyway. In a sense, the image reflected in the mirror is real because it accurately reflects the qualities of the object placed before the mirror. But the object is not real, real, because it is not actually there, there. The reflected image in the mirror is the form or image of the object placed before the mirror. Uh, it is a form insofar as it accurately reflects the object placed before the mirror, but it is what you can call a formless form, to steal a line from Rumi, and consequently unreal insofar as it is merely reproducing the image of the object before it. Indeed, we often hear that the Sufis speak of God as being contained within the hearts. You hear this a lot, God is in your heart, God is in your heart. There are indeed a number of texts I can draw upon in order to illustrate my point. Yet the one text which drives home this idea better than any other is the words of the Prophet, 
where he cites God, another hadith Qudsi, which says, the heavens and the earth contain me, cannot contain me, excuse me, but only the heart of my faithful servant can contain me. The realized saint is the only one who can be qualified from this perspective as a faithful servant and is the one who is intended by the same. Why is she faithful? Because she comes as she truly is to God. The mirror of the heart contains what we have already called God's formless form. The phenomenal universe, on the other hand, may not contain God's formless form, precisely because the things in phenomenal existence are themselves possessed of forms. The heart of the Sufi, however, does not have a form like the things in phenomenal existence, which is why it can reflect that which is formless, which is the image of God himself. And this image which thus reflects itself in the mirror of the Sufi's pure heart is thus not distinct from the heart. From this perspective, we can speak of God as being contained within the heart. The nothingness of the heart, therefore, the realization of one's utter poverty before God, paradoxically acts as the catalyst for the heart's beholding the object of its aspiration. Beholding the object of one's aspiration and being in constant remembrance of it, thus renders the one who comes to God through his poverty as, in fact, actually rich, since he is with the source of all aspirations and the goal towards which all people tend, whether they are aware of it or not. This reminds me of a very, very famous saying by Ibn Atayullah, the 14th century Shadli uh, master. He says that, uh, the, uh, he's addressing God, he says, the one who has lost you, what has he found? The one who has found you, what has he lost? Such a state of constant remembrance would naturally engender within one a state of repose and ease. This starkly contrasts with the confusion and uproar caused by the discursive faculty, which, as Ibn Arabi insists to Razi, is in a constant state of agitation and unrest, and therefore can never be in a state of tranquility. Recall also Ibn Arabi's device to Razi, which was mentioned earlier, where he says, an intelligent person, excuse, I said intelligent person, intelligent person, <laughs> intelligent person should empty his heart, heart of discursive thought when he wants to know God by way of witnessing. So heart, and then when you want to know God. Perhaps Ibn Arabi is alluding here to Razi's aforementioned theoretical knowledge of Sufism, which must have given him at least some kind of abstract notion about what the Sufis mean by the term witnessing. The great difference between Ghazali and Razi is that Ghazali did take the Sufi path. With Razi, we're just not sure. There's no way of telling. Yet this want only becomes a real aspiration when one actually does something about it. And here the advice given to Razi is that he become empty of the psychological attachment to his discursive abilities as a step in the right direction. After establishing that the intellect cannot yield the tranquility and rest that human beings seek, and by extension cannot come to know God in a total way which befits the human state, Ibn Arabi then goes on to tell Razi uh, uh, that he should, in a sense, follow the spiritual life. Entering the Sufi path is the only way that he will be able to free himself from his predicament of doubt, confusion, ignorance, and restlessness. Now, this is a very nice passage, and I'm almost done. I know I'm running out of time. Uh, Ibn Arabi says the following to Razi. He says, so my brother, at the beginning he addresses him, if you remember, as my brother, and then he reiterates that. So my brother, what ails you that you remain in this predicament and not enter upon the Sufi path, tariq, of self-discipline, riyadah, inner struggle, mujahada, and spiritual retreat, khalwa, which have been instituted by the messenger of God, God bless him and grant him peace, so that you can attain what was attained by the one about whom God said, now he quotes 1865 of the Quran, he was one of our servants upon whom we bestowed mercy from us and taught him knowledge from our presence, and so that you can attain what is attained by the likes of you who take up this noble function 
and majestic and lofty rank. The reference here is to Khidr, the famous mysterious figure who is taught directly by God and appears as Moses' teacher in the Quran, although he's not named. And we heard a lot about Khidr from Jamal Amur's uh, lecture yesterday. Uh, Ibn Arabi is calling Razi to nothing less than attaining that kind of knowledge which, which Khidr was given to by God. That knowledge from our presence, Elm Laduni. For normal human beings, and of course Khidr was far from, from being normal, uh, they have to walk the spiritual path in order to access this knowledge. If they do so, they may attain the kind of knowledge Khidr had, that is direct knowledge of God taught to him without the need of an intermediary. Anything short of this would amount to the all-too-human type of knowledge from which Ibn Arabi is trying to wrestle Razi's attention. Now, I began with, Rumi, uh, with, with Nietzsche. Earlier I spoke about him, and he has a book called Human, All-Too-Human, and, and this is kind of my response to that. that the the, the all-too-human we're talking about is a very different kind of matter altogether. Why is this form of knowledge all-too-human? It is because it springs up from that which is all-too-human namely the particular and limited frames of reference that characterize the no, uh, normal human inquiry into the nature of things. And since the human being is fundamentally impoverished, he is, in a sense, what you can call dead. Thus, all too human knowledge, that which does not come from God, can be characterized as being dead. Yet when human beings realize their nothingness, تحقيق, they will then be able to attain the object of their aspiration, namely God, who is the only one who is truly alive, and who will teach them directly from himself, just as he did for Khidr. To this effect, Ibn Arabi reminds Razi of a famous saying by Bastami, which is a fitting finish in many ways to my time with you this afternoon. Addressing people who are completely given to this all-too-human form of knowledge, Bastami exclaims, you take your knowledge as traces dead from the dead, but we take our knowledge from the living one who does not die. Thank you.